The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as you took Paul to Athens and gave him these thoughts and filled him with your spirit and caused him to proclaim them there in that assembly, would we hear them now also? From your spirit, truth to our minds and hearts, reminding us that you are not a God who needs anything from us. You, in fact, are the one who gives breath and life to everything. You're the Lord of all the heaven and the earth. You determine the places and the times in which we dwell. You are God. And Lord, we will see that today in the book of Deuteronomy. Displayed as you deal with peoples and nations. You are God, you alone. You determine the times and the places and the seasons all working towards an end that human beings would find you, would be brought into relationship with you, saved and made into a people. A people for you. Lord, many of us here today are part of that people. And I pray, Father, for us who know you today, that you would, by your Spirit, move through the text written centuries ago, that you would move through it and change our minds and hearts and renew us and rise up, raise up in front of us an image of who you are that would cause us to marvel at you and trust you and follow you in obedience. And Lord, some here today are, are not your people yet. And over them you still are God and have appointed the times and the seasons in which they dwell and have brought them here to this place on this day that they might seek you and find you though you are not far away. Open their eyes, Lord, and bring them to faith. Grant that for their great good. Lord, hear this prayer and respond to it. I pray, I ask for all of our great good and for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today we turn our attention back to the book of Deuteronomy. We began a series on Deuteronomy several weeks ago, but then took two weeks off in, in honor of the Easter holiday, and so we're going back to that book today. And as you may recall, the whole book of Deuteronomy is actually a recording of a, a monologue that Moses delivered to the people of Israel as they stood on the plains of Moab, ready to cross over into the promised lands. This is all happening on one afternoon, one day. What he says to them there is more than just a rambling pep talk or some sort of a farewell speech. There is encouragement in it, and it is a farewell speech. This is Moses' final day with them. But it's much more than that. It's a treaty renewal ceremony. We talked about that before as well. Recall the different treaties of, of the ancient Near East, of the area around Israel, and all these treaties that, that uh, sovereign powers would make with their conquered peoples. They all formed a certain structure, and the book of Deuteronomy follows that pattern very closely. 
walks through the different pieces, and the first several chapters are the historical piece, kind of the background that explains how it is that we got to the point where we are. And then what will come up shortly is the issuing of the laws, the stipulations. These are the requirements for the people to walk with their Lord, in this case for Israel to walk with God. So this is a treaty that he's laying out before them. As we move into chapters 2 and then part of chapter 3 today, we're going to see more of this flashback. He's recounting the past. And the context for that, you'll recall, is at the end of chapter 1, the people of Israel had drawn up to the border and God had commanded them to go in and take the promised land and they had said no. And they had said, we do not think that's a good idea. We're not going to go in there. And God then passed judgment on them and sent them away to wander around in the desert until, as he swore, every one of that generation perished. That's the context for today. That's where we pick up with Moses' current listeners kind of coming into their own. The other generation has died off. They're going to come into their own. And so in one sense, this is a big chunk of history, but as is always the case, history in the Bible has a theological point to it. As we read through the passage, we're going to see the theology kind of rising out of the text. It's a long passage, it's all of chapter 2 and the first seven verses of chapter 3. So I'm going to proceed as I'm going to read a part of it, pause and explain it, read another part and explain it, and then make a couple of overarching observations at the end. So let's turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Start with verses 1 to 8. Deuteronomy 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people, You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat. You shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion-Geber. Verse 1 picks up with God's judgment on the people. He sends them away from the promised land back towards the Red Sea. It's like an exodus in reverse. They're going back towards Egypt, and they wander around there for many days, 38 years to be exact. It, It is many days. They wandered around in the wilderness until God said, okay, now it's time for take two, the next generation. And he points them back. But now they're going to go a different way. They're going to pass through the the territory that belongs to Esau. And that's verses 4 to 8. And as we come to Esau, what we see here is the first of five people groups throughout this whole passage. He recounts their, their dealing with five different groups of people. And it's in those encounters that the theology of the text begins to rise up. As we'll read on, you notice that it reads a little bit like a travel log. They move from point A to point B, and this is what happened, and then point A to point B over here, and here's what happened. But if you compare Deuteronomy's account 
with numbers that has the same, same stuff happening, you begin to notice some differences that, make, that show an emphasis. First of all, you notice that the people groups are in a different order. They've been clustered in a certain way here in the book of Deuteronomy to, to point something out. And you'll also notice that there are a bunch of details in the book of Numbers that are entirely left out of Deuteronomy. For instance, the story of Balaam and his donkey takes up several chapters in Numbers totally skipped in Deuteronomy. It's not part of the point. But there is a point that he's making. And you notice it as you read through. So notice verses 4 to 8, what happens. Verse 4, you're passing through. These people are going to be afraid of you. They're going to be very tense, so be very careful. Verse 5, don't pick a fight with them. I have not given you any of their land because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. It's not for you, it's for them. Verse 6, you can purchase what you need to eat and to drink. Verse 7, 4, because the reason that you can afford to do this, that you can buy rather than having to raid or or to take it from them, is that I've blessed the work of your hands over these last 40 years in the desert. I've been with you and I've prospered you. So you have the means to buy from them. And you can do so trusting that I'm with you. I've provided for you. I'm going to continue to provide for you. Don't worry about spending your cash. I got you covered. That's the encounter with Esau. Edom, the people. Next they come to Moab, verses 8 to 15. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elaf and Ezion Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim, Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was thirty-eight years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. The next come to the second people group, Moab, in verse 9, don't pick a fight with them either because I have not given you any of their land. I have given that land to the people of Lot for their possession. It's theirs, not yours, according to my sovereign will. And then verses 10 to 12 contain a parenthetical notation. In your translation, there probably is a parenthesis around those couple of verses. And you notice as we read through this that there are a few of these thrown in there. Gives us a, a moment to understand the text here. Moses is speaking these words, but he didn't write them down. This is his last day with them. He's, he's delivering this audibly. Somebody later copied it down under the inspiration of God and God also inspired that later person to add in some remarks that would help clarify some things for later readers. It's not that different from when we read the New Testament. We see a speech of Jesus 
written down by John. And you see John's comments inserted in there. All of it's the Bible under the inspiration of God. Luke records Paul's speeches and and adds his comments to him. That's what's going on here. Moses is speaking, and God is inspiring someone else to write them down later and to add in some comments that, that help clarify some things. And this comment advances the theme a little more. You see verse 12 describes this process of moving all these people around. And we saw in verse 5 that the Lord said, I gave the land to Esau. And then in this parenthetical comment, it says that Esau dispossessed the people from the land, just like Israel did with the land that the Lord gave them for possession. So what we have here, the Lord gives the land to Esau. Esau dispossesses the people. Just like the Lord gave the land to Israel, and Israel dispossessed the people. God's doing it, but people are doing it. Yes, people must be active. People must stand up, organize an army, and go to war. But that only works because behind it, God has determined to give the land to so-and-so and and not to so-and-so. He's behind this while people are also involved. So then he tells them to rise up and go across the brook Zered, which is the language of advancing forward to take the land. And they can go to take the land now because... The time of the the generation before has passed. They've all died out, just like he swore they would. It's now time to move forward. Verses 16 to 23, the third people group. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of, the, any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as the land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before, before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarim who came from Kaphtor destroyed them and settled in their place. Now the third group of people, the people of Ammon, and one more time, verse 19, don't pick a fight with them because I'm not going to give you any of their land. I have given them their land, not to you. It's for them. And then he elaborates on that in the the parenthetical comment. The Lord is seen to be destroying people here and there and moving people groups around. What we're seeing here is what Paul was talking about in Acts 17. God determining the times and places where people dwell. God says, I'm going to give this land to these people. He's going to move those people out and move them in. Again and again, these first three people groups, and then all those other folks, sort of them, the Kaftarim and the, the Avim, etc., etc. God is in, intimately involved in the details of who lives where and when, and that is, is very obvious in these first three people groups. He determines, he's, he's, over, he, he's reigning over the sovereign flow of history. And he has determined that the time is up. For the next two people groups. 
verses 24 through chapter 3, verse 7. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau, who, lived in, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoils for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we had captured. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the lands of the sons of Ammon we did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Adre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. Now those first three people groups, they were not good people. They were not models of kindness and righteousness. But their story is all lumped together because God dealt with them in a particular way. He planted them there and he sovereignly protected them there. And the last two people are lumped together because he dealt with them obviously differently. 
Verse 24, Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite and his land. Begin to take possession. Do contend with him in battle. And so Israel does. Moses offers them peace, as was polite. But the Lord our God hardened his heart and made him obstinate so as to deliver him into the hand of Israel. And so they went to battle. Behold, I have given him over to you. Verse 36, the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him. The Lord our God gave all into our hands, everything. We took it all and wiped out everybody, leaving absolutely no survivors. And they did the same thing with Og in chapter 3. Which sometimes seems kind of harsh to modern readers. Realize this, though. Realize at least two things. First of all, we modern readers, we have a particular culture and a particular time that we're looking at this from. We don't understand, a lot of us don't understand what war always has been and in many places the world still is. It's a fight to the finish. One side finishes off the other, either way. So we have a particular culture that we're looking through. But beyond that, we have to understand that this is the judgment of God. Everything that goes on in the Exodus is a physical occurrence that is mirroring a spiritual reality. And what God is showing here is what his judgment looks like. And it is absolute and total. Judgment is the absence of any mercy whatsoever. We know this by looking back at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 is where God promises to Abraham, well, Abraham is in the promised land. He says, I'm going to give you and your people all of this land. I'm going to give it to you, but not quite yet. And he tells them there, verses 12 to 16, why not? Because, God says, the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to give you this land, but not quite yet, because the fullness of their evil has not yet come to pass. I'm going to wait. I'm going to have mercy on them for, it turns out, 500 more years. As he sends them off into Egypt and then brings them back around. For 500 more years, God has mercy on these Amorite kings. And many of the other people who dwell in this promised land are all Amorites. Sihon and Og are Amorites. He has mercy on them for 500 more years until he finally says, enough. And then judgment falls and it is absolute. So one thing that we need to keep in mind is that we view this through a particular cultural lens, but particularly we need to note this is the judgment of God that follows on the heels of much mercy. And if we're tempted to be a little bit indignant that God would respond to human beings like this, and to judge them and wipe them out. We should also keep in mind that on the other side of the coin, there are also human beings who are indignant with God for having mercy on those evil Amorites for 500 years. See what I'm saying? We sometimes look at it from one end, how could he do that? And they're looking at it the other, from the other end saying, how could he not do this? As they suffer under the Amorites. We would do better to read texts like this and let God be God. 
and to determine when he has mercy and when he hardens. When he lets sin pass and when he decides to judge. And he decides that now is the time to judge. And so he hardens the heart of Sihon and hardens the heart, presumably, of Og. Because he doesn't want there to be any temporary tactical cleverness. Now is the time of judgment. He hardens his heart. His people move in, and in obedience they attack, and they wipe out everything. All of the land is taken. All of the tall, fortified cities fall before God as he hands over everything into their hands. That's the passage for today. Obviously a long one, chapter plus. And it highlights some things for us about God as we look at him dealing with these people groups and, and walking his people Israel through them. It highlights some things for us and implies how we are to respond to him. So let me summarize this section in a, in a sentence here. Here's my, my summary sentence for the morning. God is acting in sovereign power and grace to create a holy nation. So trust him and obey him. Say that again. God is acting in sovereign power and in grace to create a holy nation. And so our appropriate response as we look at that about him is to trust him and obey him. My two observations this morning are basically an answer to the question, why? I just said that our appropriate response is to trust him and obey him. Well, why should we trust him and obey him? So you're going to try to answer that in, in two different ways. And that's the, the purpose of the passage. Moses, recall the setting here, Moses is speaking this passage to people who are standing on the border of the promised land. Facing on the other side of the river, enemies, peoples that they're going to have to go to war with. And he's commanded them to step out. Moses' hoped for response from them is that they would trust God and that they would obey him and step out. And this text is what God inspires Moses to use to bring that response about. So why should we trust and obey God? Two observations. Start with the first one. We trust and obey him because the Lord is sovereign in creating a holy nation. The Lord is sovereign in creating a holy nation. When we talk about God being sovereign, what we're talking about is his authority and his power. His reign over a realm, like a, like a king reigns over a place. Not just about how he knows everything or how he might possibly be able to do everything, but how he actually does control, spreads his wings over, and has authority over a realm. And the realm within which he work, he's working here is all of his creation. He reigns over all peoples and all nations. The text makes that abundantly clear as we walk through these five people groups. It's not just that he's the God of Israel dealing with Israel. How did Esau end up where he did? Verse 22, the Lord gave him that land, chased out his enemies. 
Same thing for Moab and Ammon. The Lord destroyed their former occupants, and the Lord moved them in there, and then the Lord protected them from his people Israel. He kept them there. That's God's hand on non-Israelites. He's working throughout the whole world. All of the nations are his realm. And he is reigning over them to accomplish a purpose. Now, yes, he works through providence. We talked about providence before we saw there that the Lord gives and the people have to act. Yes, he works through human agents. That, that's true. But behind it is God's sovereign, powerful, omnipotent will. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He accomplishes his plans. He's sovereign. Same thing as he hands over Sihon and Og. The Lord cast a fear over the nations. He hardened their spirits. He gave everything into their hands. It, it's blatant in this passage. The Lord is active in everything. Handing people over. Drawing lines assuring that his hand was against the wicked generation to destroy them. He's doing it all. Sovereign, reigning, to fulfill his purpose. What is his purpose in this passage? Sovereign power of the Lord here in this passage is wielded for a particular reason, to create for himself a holy nation. A nation. In the most fully defined, a nation includes a place and a people. If a, if a king only has a place, but there isn't anybody who lives there, he doesn't really have a nation. Or if he only has a people that are all homeless, then he doesn't really have a nation. The fullness of, of it is both those together, a, a place and a people, both. And what God is doing here is he's wielding his sovereign power to create a holy nation where righteousness and justice are both not only just the foundation of his own throne, but are the foundation of every single person in his realm, every single person's life. It stretches over every inch of the place and fills up every corner of the people. A holy nation what he's striving to do here. That's his goal for which he created the earth, in fact. Think back to the very beginning. What's God doing when he creates a place and then says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worshipers of me whose hearts are totally, fully inclined after me to worship me in truth, to walk after me in holiness. He wants a place and a people. A holy nation from the very beginning. And then here now with his people, Israel, he's taken a dramatic step forward to accomplish that purpose. That's his goal. And we see it here as he cleanses the people of the wicked generation. His hand was against them until they perished. He cleanses the people to create a holy group of people. And he wipes out utterly in judgment the Amorites to make a, a clean land so that their idolatry, all the worship of false gods, would not taint the place and would not influence his people and draw them away. He 
cleanses the land and he cleanses the people. And clearly, he is the one doing it. He is sovereign to create a holy nation. That's what he's doing here. So what's his message to Moses, through Moses, to the people that are there on the plains of Moab? He's talking to them about something. He's communicating to them. I have a plan, and I, my hand is moving so as to bring it to pass. And my plan is that there would be a holy people in a holy place, and I will get it done. I will accomplish it. I'm wielding all of my power to bring it to pass. I want a righteous people with whom I can one day live in a righteous realm, the dwelling of God with man, a holy nation. How does he do that? Well, here he does it by war. But what's the physical pointing to? Think this through, and I I hope you can see the connection here. How does God wield sovereign power to create a holy nation? How does God wield sovereign power to clean his people and to clean the place where they will live? How does he do that? Not ultimately by physical war. We all know you keep reading in the Old Testament, and it's blatant that that does not work. These same people, they will shortly be disobedient. And the place, it's going to be overrun with evil and wickedness. Physical warfare doesn't work. A giving of a perfect law doesn't work. It doesn't work to create a holy people and a holy place by anything on the earth. Not by telling people what to do, not by enforcing it with the sword. It doesn't work. So what does God do in power to create a holy people and a holy place? To make a holy nation. To form a real kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people who are after his own heart. What does he do? I hope you know. What's this pointing to? The sovereign power of God on the cross. It's the physical mirroring the spiritual. He's pointing out to us his his strong, firm intent to create a place and a people that are holy. And we know it doesn't work. It's pointing ahead to what he does that does work. The cross. His sovereign power ultimately works through the cross to cleanse a people and to cleanse a place where God then can dwell with people and righteousness and justice will be the characteristic of their life, of their existence with him, one day even of the actual realm in which they live. That's what the cross does. Most of us here realize this, I know. Some of us perhaps don't. What happens at the cross is that God in power has accomplished something that will cleanse people. And people need to be cleansed. We are stuck in sin. The Bible uses words like cursed. We are Sihon and Og. Under the judgment of God, waiting for his mercy to wear out. He's patient for yet one more day, for yet one more day, 
But how many more days? We're, we're under his judgment waiting. But graciously, he's done something at the cross that can actually change that reality, if you'll trust it. He's acted so as to remove sin from people and to cleanse us in a way that actually works so that we stand before him holy, pure, righteous. And in the resurrection from the dead, what Jesus shows is that he's actually sovereign over death even. Sin doesn't even conquer him. Death can't even conquer him. And he promises, I'm going to come back and wipe it all out of the earth. Make the world clean. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't happened yet. But it's happening a little bit in the hearts of his people. And he promises that the fullness of it will come yet, that there will be a time when he comes and cleanses all the earth. This is what the cross accomplishes. It's how God, in sovereign power, creates a holy nation. So why should you trust and obey God? Well, the first observation here is that because he is sovereign in power to create a holy nation and seeing a God, a father, with that kind of power causes in us trust, causes in us dependence on him. When I was young, I lived about a block from our grade school. So I walked to school from my very youngest days. Probably not kindergarten, but first grade, very youngest days, I would walk to school. I lived in a small town. It's pretty safe generally. But very early on, so I'm, I'm a real little kid, walking to school, and there came a time when there were a number of loose dogs roaming the town. And they were mean dogs. And I'm little, so they were about my size dogs. Mean dogs. And my little sister and myself are toddling down to school. And two, three, sometimes four of these dogs would come around and they were threatening, they were intimidating. Sometimes I'd, I'd run to get to school never knowing if they were actually going to attack us. And one day they did actually attack us in our own driveway as we were trying to get out of our car. I remember my dad kind of kicking them to fight them off. These were mean dogs. And here I am walking to school with this threat. And I'm complaining to my parents, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm terrified of them. What am I going to do about this problem? My sister and myself were dashing to school every day, hoping, hoping, hoping we make it. And one day my dad said, enough of this. And he escorted us to school carrying a shotgun. <laughs> How do you think I felt? It's too old to be embarrassed. Totally safe. I stuck right by him, walked right behind him, and thought, here's my dad with power. We're going to make it to school. I'm safe. I see my dad's power. I'm safe. Now, the sheriff's deputy showed up shortly. <laughs> True story. Evidently, somebody had seen us walking down the street with a gun and called, called the sheriff. And so he showed up, and, and my dad had anticipated that and had brought along copies of the applicable laws and said, this is legal for me to do. Look right here. And he said, I guess it is. 
And then my dad said, if you want to actually do something about the problem, though, we, it's a small town. We know everybody. We know whose dogs these are. Go talk to them and tell them to lock their dogs up or to put them on a leash because if they come around and threaten my kids, I'm going to kill them. This is my dad saying this, and I'm thinking, like, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's it. Absolutely. That's what my dad says, and I feel totally safe. What do you know? The problem went away. Why did the problem go away? Because my dad, in power, stepped in and fixed it. His power assures that I reach the goal of getting to school every day. You look at a strong father. I suppose a mother would work too, but it works better with a father and a gun, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You look at a strong father who says, I'm going to act to make sure that this happens. And it does. And what wells up in me is a little bit of pride, but mostly confidence and rest. He's doing something to assure that this happens for me. God's the one who in power assures, I'm going to create a holy nation. It's not up to you. Thank goodness. We can't even make ourselves holy. He can tell us what to do and we can't pull it off. We need him to act to make ourselves holy and then to cleanse this place of evil and to gather us together into a people who are holy. You see a father acting like that and what rises up in you is trust and a desire to stick close to him and not wander away. My dad's walking down the street. I don't walk through the alley right on the sidewalk with him. It's obvious if I have to throw in an if there because I'm working on a huge assumption here. It's an assumption that was true in my case. But I'm working on the assumption that the power that dad is carrying there in him is good. Because we all know fathers who have a lot of power and have not joined that to goodness. Or are entirely indifferent and say, hey, fix the problem yourself, kid. Grow up. Seeing the power that's in the hand of the father only generates in you, only motivates in you trust and obedience if that power is also joined to goodness. If it's not, it actually has the opposite effect and chases you away. We need more than just uh, an affirmation of his power. We need clear evidence of God's goodness and grace. We're asking, why should you trust and obey God? Well, because he has power, yes, but is there grace and goodness in it? That leads us to the second observation. Surely we're to realize his power that's all over this text. But more than that, here's a second observation. The Lord is full of grace as he creates a holy nation. I would argue this is more important because the grace tells us how he's going to wield the power. The most terrifying thing in all the world is an omnipotent, sovereign God of evil. Thank 
God that he is not that. He is an omnipotent, sovereign God of grace. Now to understand this, we need to follow a theory here. So let me try to explain some things here in, in some steps. Following God is actually good for you. Following God is the path of blessing. It's the path of grace, the path of goodness. He makes a command, and on the other side of the command is blessing, not cursing. Some people tell you to do stuff so that they can get you. They're trying to manipulate you or hurt you or put you in a compromised position so that they can crush you. That's not the case with God. God commands, and on the other side of that, there is grace, there is blessing, there is goodness there. You have to believe that as you're standing and looking at the commandment and looking at the circumstance in which the commandment is issued. Because if you don't believe that, that here's the commandment and grace lies over there, goodness and blessing for me lies over there, if you don't believe that, option B will attract you. No, 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 actually, goodness and blessing lies over here. This is how sin works. Sin never works on duty. Sin works on pleasure, on blessing, on goodness. It says, this is what will bless you. This is what will make you happy. Come this way. And you have to believe, no, actually, on the other side of the commandment of God is where goodness lies. Follow the theory there. Obedience to God is rooted in the belief that on the other side of the command lies blessing. Well, why would you believe that? Especially when you look at the commandment. That's, a, that's kind of a tough commandment there. And I don't know if that matches really well with what I think of the circumstances out here. You want me to go into that land and fight those people? There's a lot of people in there. And they're armed, and they're not going to like this. And they've got fortified cities, and we're a bunch of peasants wandering through the desert. I don't know if this makes a lot of sense, God. That happens often in life for us. We look at the commandment and the circumstances and say, oh, I don't know. But to believe that on the other side of the commandment, that's where the blessing of God lies. That's belief is necessary for obedience. Moses realizes that. God realizes that. And so he's going to argue that point, not to argue, well, you have to do it. You just have to, because you have to, because that's right, because you have to. No, the Bible actually does not argue that way. The Bible argues, do this, you have to, because it's good for you. Deuteronomy is full of it. You might know it perhaps best in the first commandment, honor your fa- the first commandment with the promise, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you? What is that? Commandment, blessing on the other side of it. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. If you believe that, that's what's going to determine, do I honor them or not? It's all over the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, working to draw out of these people trust and obedience so that they will believe God and cross the river and take the land has repeatedly displayed this dynamic. What did he do in chapter 1? When the spies came back, afraid of all the people out there, what does he do? He doesn't just say, well, do it because you have to. He says, oh, come on. 
Sure, there are people over there, but the Lord your God, he points back, the Lord your God fought for you in Egypt and carried you through the wilderness like a father carries his son. He points back at something, at God's goodness back there, his grace back there. Why does he do that? Because it establishes something about God's character. Is God out to get you? Why would he have fought for you and carried you through the wilderness if he was out to get you? So is God out to get you in this command right here? No, if he was out to get you, he would have got you back there. Think this through. The blessing of God is following on the heels of the commandment of God. It always has. He's not arguing on the basis of duty. He's arguing on the basis of blessing and grace. This is what God is like. This is how he has dealt with you. And he will be like that tomorrow because that's his nature. Follow what he's doing there in chapter 1. He does the same thing in chapter 2. First, he does it very subtly as he tells this story to them. What are the dangers that are in the land that they're facing Fortified cities, remember what the spies said? Fortified cities and the Anakim are there, the giants. Well, they're still there. It's only 38 years later, still the same. They still have to face them. And as Moses tells this story very subtly, he brings up those same threats. Remember how at the end of chapter 2, he says, There was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. But the cities are really tall. They're fortified up to the heavens. Yeah, but look, there wasn't a city too high for us at all here. God gave it to us. And the Anakim, the giants, twice he mentions them. Showing how God's already dealt with them. He's not bothered by giants. So there are some subtle ways and some not so subtle ways. How many times they say the Lord gave them into our hands. The Lord's hand did this. He's pointing at what God has already done to establish the character of God as being a God of not just power, but a God who does good to his people. He's already delivered you from Sihon and Og. He's already taken care of giants. He's already cast down high-walled cities. That's what he's done. He'll do that again. Doing that in subtle ways, but the clearest, most explicit way that he shows this dynamic of pointing back at God's past grace so as to establish the certainty of God's future grace. The clearest way is in verse 7 of chapter 2. Leading them through the, the land of Edom. They're supposed to buy the food that they're going to eat and drink the water and buy the water that they're going to drink. Why? For, verse 7, because the Lord your God has blessed you. When? In the past. Has blessed you in all of the work of your hands. He has known your going through this wilderness. You have not lacked anything. You can afford to pay for all this stuff because God has blessed the work of your hands in a desert. People don't get rich in the desert. That never happens. People die in the desert, but they've actually prospered there. He's known they're going through, not meaning that he has become intellectually aware of where they tread. Obviously, he knows that. He led them. If you're reading the NIV, you see a translation that captures the meaning of it. The NIV says, he has watched over 
your journey through this great desert. He's watched over their steps and provided for them. They have lacked nothing, but in fact have prospered. What's God been like for them in the past? What's he been like? He's been a God of grace. He has met them and carried them like a father carries a son. Now there's a lot of power in that, but there is grace in it. His goodness shown to his people over 40 years. The last 38, particularly remarkable because the reason that they're wandering around is because of unbelief. But he sustains them anyway. God is showing them. Moses, through illustrating from their past history, is showing them. He has carried you through the desert. He has fed you and watered you through all of these past decades. Will he not also, along with all of that, give you everything else in the future? Trust him. Obey him. Don't take their land. Don't steal their stuff. Pay him for it. On the other side of that obedience, you'll find his blessing. It's the kind of God he is. You look back and you see his marvelous grace for you. And you realize that's because he is a God of grace. Always. He will deal with me in grace tomorrow, too. So, brothers and sisters, what this means for us, as you think about how God works in your life, it should be pretty clear, I think. We should look at this and say, this is what God is like. He is a God of grace who deals with me, his child, now always in grace. Because of the cross, he has taken sides with me. And it's exactly the argument that Paul makes in Romans 8. I've already alluded to the verse. He brings this up with him. He points back and says, he's given you Christ, right? Right? Will he not also along with him give you all things? And what in fact can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Not famine, not nakedness, not sword, not financial crisis, not cancer. Nothing. That's hard to believe. It's not hard to intellectually understand, I don't think. But it's hard to believe. Particularly when the financial crisis or the cancer is real and in your family, in your life. And I know I'm I I know that I am preaching this to some people here in this room who are dealing with this right now in their lives. Some people who will listen to it later are dealing with it right now in their lives. Dealing with far more than I ever have. And you don't doubt God's power. That, that is rarely something that we doubt. But you doubt God's goodness. Because if he was good, would he do this? That doesn't make sense. Would he do this right here? Would he bring this to pass if he was actually good? I know he can do something about it, but it seems like he doesn't care. That's the, that's the doubt that we struggle with. Is that what God is like? 
to really deal with me in grace. And what he asks you to do is to look back at your life and see him dealing with you in grace along the way, establishing his character as assurance. He'll have grace for you tomorrow. Walk with him. Trust him and obey him. Maybe you can see in the circumstances of your life God at work. At least you can see it in the cross. The clearest, most profound display of God's love for you, of God's gracious nature, is in the cross. Where he sent his son to step into this world to decisively deal with your sin problem and deliver you into his presence now and forever. That's his grace. That's his love. If at the moment there are no other circumstances in your memory where you can see God's gracious loving hand on your life, you can at least, and I think most profoundly, look at the cross and say, that's where God has shown me who he is. And he asks you to consider that. To ask what that says about his nature, about his character, about his inclination towards you. Yes, he has great power. Look at the cross. He also has great grace. And he is working right now in your life in sovereign power and in grace to make a holy nation of you, of us. Our response to him should be to trust him and obey him. Is it hard? Yes. Will he help you if you talk to him about it? Yes. So talk to him about it. Say, Lord, show me not just your power, show me your grace. Show me in the cross your love. God is acting in sovereign power and grace to create a holy nation. Trust him and obey him. Let me pray. Father, we need help to believe. We need grace to believe your grace. So would you give that to us? Would you, in sovereign power, Lord, do a work now that, that opens eyes, that softens hearts, that helps us to see you and understand you as a God of grace, to see you as working in power, to cleanse us of sin, to cleanse the world of sin. Lord, show yourself to be that kind of God. To lift up Christ in our eyes. To grow in us faith. Would you do that, please, Father? It's my prayer. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 
6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.